Zippity-doo-dah. It's time for another episode of the Left-Wing Dictionary, the handy online resource that lets you wade through the complex, highly intellectualized language of the left so you can get right down to the lies. Today's word is diversity. Diversity is when everyone is the same. Diversity is derived from the Latin word diversus, which means divert. By sounding like it means different, diversity diverts your attention from the fact that diverse people are completely alike. They have the same opinions about everything that's important, and if they don't, you're allowed to call them names like racist or Uncle Tom and force them not to say anything that would stop everyone from being so diverse. One of the ways you can tell that people are diverse is that they have different colored faces while they agree about everything. Having different colored faces is very important because it's different while still being diverse, which is the same. If people with different colored faces disagree about what's the same, then they're no longer diverse and their different colored faces don't count and you can call them names and force them not to say anything because that's diversity. Minorities are, of course, very diverse as long as they agree with the majority. Otherwise, they would be different and no longer the same, which would ruin the diversity. When a minority agrees with the majority, he still remains a minority because his face is a different color. But if a minority stops agreeing with the majority and becomes a minority, then he's no longer a minority because he's not in the majority and ceases to be diverse. Women are diverse because they are different, although what they are different from is not exactly clear. But there's no question that they're different because they are women, and what could be more different than that? Women are especially different when they are strong and independent, as long as they agree with everyone else. Because if they disagree, they are no longer the same and are not diverse and can then be called the most horrible names of all because they're women and they can't really do anything about it. So they better be diverse or else. Diversity is good because it gives everyone a warm feeling of tolerance. When a conservative comes along who is not diverse because he is different, then everyone can hate them very much, which makes everyone the same, which is diverse and diversity is good. A good place to learn about diversity is in college. College is where you come to learn about all the different ideas people have had through history and why they are wrong because they are not the same as your ideas and therefore aren't diverse. When you learn why all the different ideas are bad because they are different and not diverse, you will be the same. Then when you get out of college, you will be so diverse that no one will be able to tell the difference between you and everybody else. Now that you have learned the meaning of the word diversity, you should be able to use it in simple sentences, such as trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, a lot of different things to talk about today. Uh, we can't let the day go by without mentioning the, the budget deal that John Boehner made with Satan. You know, this is a conservative show. We have to overreact to everything. It's a budget deal with Satan. You know, every time, I talk about, every time I talk about politics, I'm always reminded of this great old Hollywood story from the old days of Hollywood. Harry Cohn was one of the founders of Hollywood. He founded Columbia. I wanted to say Paramount, but that was super. He was one of the many Jewish guys who founded this industry. Whenever people say, you know, oh, the Jews own Hollywood, my feeling is, well, you start the greatest entertainment industry on earth, and you, then you can own it. You know? <laughs> it's like, no, I can, don't let me stop you. Knock yourself out. Anyway, Harry Cohn was one of the guys who founded Columbia, and he was an awful, awful man. He was just a bully and a liar and, you know, ran this, a, a casting couch. So, uh, so his casting couch was so busy that women became legendary for not sleeping with him. You know, that's like the women who, who refused to get on the casting when, but he was still one of the big moguls of Hollywood. So when he died, 
his funeral was packed. Crowds poured out, and they lined the streets as the, as the hearse was coming in. And the famous comedian Red Skelton said, well, you know, Harry was right. Give the public what they want, and they'll show up. <laughs> and, and so whenever, whenever I talk about politics, I think about that, because it's true also in the conservative blogosphere and conservative broadcasting. You want to give the public what they want, so they'll show up. Uh, but a lot of times what conservatives want is rage. They want, like, I'm sick and tired of this country. And i got to be honest, I don't feel that way about anything. I mean, I, don't, you know, I, like, I wake up every morning. First of all, I'm still here, which is always a good, a good thing. You know? I mean, there, there, are Christians who, there are Christians who say to me, you know, I can't wait to die and get to heaven. I'm not that guy. You know? I mean, I'm sure heaven is going to be terrific. You know? I'm, a, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried that the fundamentalists will be right about gay and they'll, gays and there'll be no musical comedy in heaven. But aside, aside from that, I'm sure heaven will be great. But right now, I'm really fascinated by what's going on. And so I, I wake up every morning. I'm really glad to be here. I just don't, I don't get to that level, especially about politicians, you know, because we already know what politicians are. We already know they're the lowest of the low. So I'm not going to get angry about that, certainly not about a budget deal. And the other thing that I, I feel that conservatives like is they're into the, the, the her heroism of despair. The her let's call it the heroism of despair. It's like, this country is finished. It's done. If they, if they allow more Mexicans, we're finished. We'll be Mexico. It's fin we're finished. It's done. It's right. It's right. And, I, and I'm, I, just don't, I just don't go there. You know, last night I was watching the World Series, and it's it was very moving for me. There was a moment when uh, in, late in the game, I think it was the eighth inning, ninth inning, the score was tied, uh, dribbling a, a bouncing single to first base, and the uh, first baseman Eric Cosmer, uh, I think his name is, he, he missed the ball and temporarily the Mets went ahead. They ultimately lost the game to the Royals, but they went ahead. And I choked up because it was reminiscent, they even played a clip of it on the show, it was reminiscent of the 1986 sixth game of the World Series of the Mets. And this was the most important World Series of my life. I mean, I've, I'm a person who has lived, I've written about this a little bit, you can go if you Google uh, Gary Carter. Gary Carter was the great catcher of the 86 Mets. And if you Google, uh, Gary Carter taught me how to play the game in my name. You'll see this piece in the Wall Street Journal that I wrote about this. You know, I've lived, I've lived two lives. I lived an early part of my life, which was very beset by personal demons. And then as I, as I came close to 30, was, I was about 28, me and my personal demons just had it out. It was like that scene. It was like that scene in Sherlock Holmes, where Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty go off the cliff with their hands wrapped around each other's throats. That's, that's what happened to me and my personal demons. I was like, off the cliff. And just like in Sherlock Holmes, only one of us came back alive, and it was me, you know? <laughs> As I was going through this period of transition from one life to a totally different life that I've lived, uh, I attached myself to the New York Mets. I just attached my ego and my emotions to the New York Mets. So I lived and died with them. And they became a symbol to me of the struggle that I was going through. Their struggle to win the game was a symbol to me of, of my, my own struggle. And like I said, I wrote about this in this piece about Gar Gary Carter, which you can read a very short piece, but sort of talks about this. The sixth game in the 86 World Series, one of the most famous baseball games in all of history, my wife and I were sitting in a tavern in Queens, which is... Mets Central, that's where the Mets are from, is Queen, the borough of Queens in New York. And you know on TV where they flash to the bar to show you what the away team fans are doing? We were in that, like, it, they weren't showing it, but we were in that exact kind of bar. So people are just like watching this game, and this game, the Mets, it was lost. It was lost. They were down to their last out. They were behind. It was, they were going to lose the series. 
And my heart just went through the floor. I mean, I just, I despaired. And I said to my wife, I gotta leave, I can't watch this. Uh, it's killing me. And she said, you know, do what you gotta do. And then I didn't leave. You know, I decided I, I had to stay. I was gonna die with these people. I understood that my life was now over, that nothing was ever gonna be good in my life. You know, and this was it, but I had to just face it. And, and of course, as every baseball fan knows, it, it was a miracle. I mean, it was a game. It was a game touched by the hand of God. Every ball that the Mets touched dribbled, just got through or just passed through, and it ended with this amazingly famous uh, dribbling ball to first base. Mookie Wilson hit this ball to first base, and Bill Buckner, I always feel sorry for him because he was a genuinely good first baseman, but all anybody remembers about Bill Buckner is that his legs were injured and he couldn't get down to get the ball, and it just dribbled between his legs. And Mookie hit first, and Ray Knight came in to score, and the game was over, and they won. And I'm in this tavern, and the place went nuts. I mean, the play, you know, we were hugging per perfect strangers, you know, lifting them off the floor, just going crazy. And my wife turned to me, and she pointed her finger in my face, and she said, never forget that. And I never have, and I never despair. You know, it's like you take you take your at bats, and God decides how it's going to happen. So, if the left drags this country into the flames of hell, the last thing you're going to see before we sink beneath the flames is my hand on their throat. Going down. It's just like I never, I never ever say, you know, that, that this is over. So. We have this ongoing argument in, in this office, and one of the reasons I love coming in here, it's kind of ironic because the other thing that was true of me in youth was I could never make small talk. I was this intense artist, and all I wanted to talk about was art and literature and the truth. So I, like, I'd meet people at cocktail parties, and I'd be like, so, do you think there's a God? You know, <laughs> That was my opening gambit for conversation. And then, and then it occurred to me at some point that uh, Louis Armstrong was right. You know, that's that wonderful song, It's a Wonderful World, where he says, I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? And they're really saying, I love you. And I realized the small talk is actually a way of just saying, well, here we are on our way to the grave. And, you know, <laughs> let's spend a couple of, keep each other company as this, you know, earth spirals down into the sun. And <laughs> just, here we are. So, so then I understood that talking about the weather is not talking about the weather. But now I come into this office and all we do is talk about the big ideas and the things that are going on. We have this ongoing argument. Are the, the Republicans from hell? Are they the Republicans the worst people on earth? And is John Boehner this terrible, terrible guy? And I tend to be on the moderate, on the somewhat moderate side. I think John Boehner and the conservative base are arguing about tactics. That Boehner thinks that if we shut the government down, then we're going to lose that argument. And the people are going to get angry at us, and Obama is going to do what he does, which is really all, it's really mean. What he does is he uses the closure of the government to hurt the weakest people and veterans and things like that, and because he knows, and then, and then he goes on TV and he blames the Republicans, and Boehner doesn't want that to happen. Whereas a lot of people on the right are thinking, shut the government down and just you know see what happens. I mean, when Ted Cruz did it, we won a, a landslide election in the next uh, midterm election. So they made this budget deal, and basically it's the usual crappy deal. The, the typical, typical budget deal is we give Obama everything he wants, and he tells us that someday he's going to cut some small program somewhere, and he doesn't. That's, that's basically the deal. And so it's hard for me. I, I think it stinks. I really do. The only thing that I have to admit really, really ticked me off was Paul Ryan. I mean, if anything sent a little flame of anger, and this is the other thing, I, I get this all the time, is 
you know, I talk about how anger is the devil's cocaine, you know, and it's, it's like people are, somebody tweeted me two days ago, well, Jesus got angry when he threw the money changers out of the temple. I thought, yeah, how come nobody ever says to me, well, Jesus raised people from the dead, so, so can I, you know, <laughs> nobody ever says that. But if Jesus got angry, then, you know, Jesus got, and listen, we all get angry, you know, anger can be righteous, but anger is not righteousness, and that's why it's addictive. It feels like it's righteousness. But the one thing I have to say that ticked me off is Paul Ryan. Now, I, I like Paul Ryan. It seems to me that you can't say this budget deal stinks because it doesn't actually deal with our spending problems and not give props to Paul Ryan for his innovative ideas about, uh, you know, cutting entitlements, which are eventually going to become the, what, what we do because we'll have to. And it's just a matter of time before a Democrat president can take credit for them. That's how it works. Great conservative ideas always come to fruition as soon as a Democrat can take credit for them. So, you know, we had welfare reform when Clinton was in, and everybody says, wasn't that brilliant? What a brilliant thing to do, even though it, it, gen it was generated by the Republican Congress. Paul Ryan comes out, and he says, this deal stinks. Now, Paul Ryan is about to become Speaker of the House, and John Boehner knows it, and John Boehner knowing that he can no longer, he's, he's leaving, so he has nothing to lose. So he made this deal knowing he has nothing to lose. It prevents Congress from shutting down the government for, until Obama's gone. And it doesn't deal with anything until Obama's gone. And it protects Paul Ryan from the conservative base, because now the conservative base can't say, oh, Paul Ryan's not shutting down the government. Ryan can just say, well, this terrible, terrible deal. I hate being lied to. I just hate being lied to. And the idea that Ryan will put on this kabuki show you know, that would, that's supposed to justify him, and we're supposed to all think, and, and most people aren't paying that much attention, it's a budget deal, who cares, really? You know, most people aren't paying that much attention, and so he's kind of hoping that the right will say, well, you know, Paul Ryan, those things. And I, I, that really gets my goat, I got it, I have to admit, I wish they would just, he could have just come out and said, well, this gets me off the hook, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, shoo, you know, thanks, John, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Boehner. <laughs> you used your political capital to save my backside. Anyway, that that is all I have to say about the budget deal. I just hate this theater that the conservatives and that the Republicans in Congress have started to kind of appease uh, conservatives. It drives me just a little bit nuts. And I, I think like if they had any respect for us, uh, they wouldn't do it. And if they lose, if we lose Congress and we lose the presidency, it's going to be because they be behave like this. This is not saving uh, the government from the Democrats at all. All right. Now, more importantly, the dark night, I have to say this. I have, I have been vindicated. <laughs> this, this is so, it, it took seven years. Remember, I said that as long as Democrats get credit for things, conservative ideas can come to fruition. Okay, The Dark Knight was 80, wait, I don't know, I wrote it down, it's 82, is that what it was? The summer of, uh, yeah, the summer of 82, right? I'm sorry, 2008, 82. I'm back in the, I'm back in the Mets. 2008, yeah. 2000, I knew there was a two and an eight in there. <laughs> Some of 2008. All right, Dark Knight comes out. George Bush is under attack because he's invading all these countries. What an evil guy he is. And I go to this, and this is the biggest box office smash in history at the time. And I write a piece for the Wall Street Journal saying that Batman is George W. Bush. Obviously, Batman is George W. Bush. The left goes nuts. I mean, I was called names. I, you know, I really, I, I, I don't think I've ever been attacked like that. You know, called an idiot, a moron, all this stuff. What's his name? That guy, Keith Olbermann, that fathead? Remember that blockhead? What, whatever. Is he doing sports now again? Because 
you know, when I was in radio news, he was in sports, and every, seriously, he was at the station where I worked, at the network where I worked, and people used to say, that guy's an idiot, you know? <laughs> if you talk to this guy, Oberman, he's an idiot, but then he became a professional idiot, and he did this left-wing show, and he would do the worst person on earth, okay? I was not the worst person on earth. Rupert Murdoch was the worst person on earth for allowing this piece of mine to be published, saying that Batman is George W. Bush. Now, crack.com is a humor site. You may remember Crack. It was the second tier mad magazine, okay? And crack.com is the second tier mad magazine.com, I guess. And for a while, it was a really funny site. I mean, uh, uh, have you read, John, have you read uh, John Dies at the End? This comic, uh, this comic horror novel that came out, the editor of crack.com wrote it, and it's funny. It's a, they made it into a bad movie, but it was a funny book. But crack.com has become this left-wing site, and it has lost all its sense of humor. And it's because, so it's totally left-wing. The other day, they put out this thing. It's called Six Famous Movies That Has Symbolism That Will Blow Your Mind. So I'll play it. I, a lot of it is written, so I'll, I'll read the captions so you, in case you're just listening and you can't see it, although you should subscribe so you can watch. So here it is, Six Movies That Will Blow Your Mind. This is number five is The Dark Knight, okay? And this is what the caption says. Go ahead and play it. Okay, The Dark Knight, 2008. Batman is George W. Bush. That's the symbolism. The Joker is terrorism. If I get him to you, Batman you goes to legal to extremes to I'll stop to evil. I said all this in this piece. With half the city and wiretaps people's phones. All of this is wrong. I've got to find this man, Lucius. I authorize the National Security Agency. <laughs> Consistent with U.S. law and the Constitution. All right, so you can stop it. <laughs> to enter. <laughs> yes, yes, I've won. <laughs> I'm top of the world, ma. Ah, who cares what they think? <laughs> but I just, I just had to point that out because no one is ever, you know, they're not going to mention me in this piece. They're just going to say it's all right. So speaking of movies, last night I watched Straight Outta Compton. And you may say, why did, why did you do that? And it's because it's, it's screener season. And for those who are not in the biz, screener season comes at the end of the year when the movie companies want to win awards for their pictures, all the different awards that they give out. They send free DVDs to people who are in a position to vote on those awards. And I'm in the WGA. That's, that's my union. And uh, I, got, I actually got into the WGA as a radio news writer. And it's a very it's a very different union for screenwriters and for W uh, and for radio news writers. As a screenwriter, you call it the WGA, one of the truly great trade guilds. A very very left wing, which is unfortunate when they deal with politics. But when they deal with their business, what they're supposed to deal with, you call them up and you say, "I have a problem with my credit on this movie." All right, well, I'll I'll transfer you to a Harvard lawyer who will help you, you know, sue the movie company for everything they're worth. And just just hold on just a minute. When you're a radio news writer, you call them up and it's like, "Hello," you know, you <laughs> go, "Yeah." Is this the, could the WGA? I'm sorry, I don't speak. What, the, what do I do? I don't have that language. With this is English. Yes, I do not know speak that. You know, it's a different department you get as a radio news writer. But I got in as a radio news writer and then stayed in to become a screenwriter. And they send me these screeners, so I will vote for them for the best screenplay of the year. So they sent me straight out of Compton. Straight out of Compton is the story of a famous 
uh, rap group from the 80s, speaking of the World Series, or 86, I think they started. They were called NWA, Niggas Wit Attitude. Okay. <laughs> now, now, obviously, and, and they were really famous because they produced uh, Dr. Dre and uh, Ice Cube and guys who went on to do stuff by themselves. And also they, th those guys, then went on to produce guys like Snoop Dogg and the whole next you know, generation of, of rappers. Now, obviously, I'm not the audience for this movie. I mean, I hate, the, I hate this music. I just hate it. I, I, think the, I think the music is repetitive and boring. I think the lyrics are not untalented. They're not untalented, but they are awful. I mean, you know, I, I can't, I can't, let me, let me give you, Dr. Dre has one, the title of which, I can't even say the title. I mean, this is the internet, so we are allowed to curse, but I, just, I prefer not to. I like, I'm like Bartleby with cursing. I prefer not to do it. So I can't really tell you the name of this thing, the name of this Dr. Dre song, but it's a, a, a nasty word for women, the, the B word, as we would say, and then the word ain't, and then a four-letter word starting with S, okay? So you can figure it out. It's, it's, it's B words, ain't S word. That's, that's the, the thing, all right? <clears throat> Let me translate the, the chorus of this, this song in into white, okay. I'm going to translate the chorus of this hip hop song. This is just the chorus, and I'm translating obviously from the original. Women are worthless except as prostitutes. Woman, I command you to perform oral sex on me in the most degraded and subservient manner imaginable. Then get out, while I get in my car and drive away. And that that repeats. It's kind of catchy, right? It's, like, you know, it's got a it's got a beat, you know. <laughs> so so this stuff means nothing to me. I mean, I, to me, I, I have to be honest. The word that comes into my mind when I hear rap is it's, it's unmanly. It's unmanly. They they talk about themselves in the third person, and they brag about beating people up, and they and they talk about women uh, in ways that just really go up my spine. And and so I, I can't stand it. So I'm not the audience. That said, I think I can also say that this, it's not, it, oh, this was a huge hit, I should point out. This was, I, I mean, I think it's made almost $200 million. It is a big, big, big hit. I, I think I can say, just as a guy who watches movies, it's not a good movie. Uh, it's, it's way too long. It's two and a half hours. And, and, we're, and it's very uh, stagnant. There's a lot of concert scenes that I know the audience wants to see and all this, but it's just very repetitive. And the acting isn't good, which, I, which really surprised me. You know, uh, there's so much great black talent in Hollywood, and a lot of it is unused. And they claim that's bigotry, but I don't think it is. I think it's just what the audience will take and how much you know product they can turn out. But because there are more talented black people than there are roles for them, there's just an enormous number of great, great black talents. If you watch that show, uh, Empire. It's like people wandering and do bit parts. They'll sing three notes and they'll be, just blow you out of your seat. I mean, so much talent. And these guys, I just didn't think they were very good. I just didn't think, I thought the script was, uh, was okay, you know, it was fine, it was, it was a hagiography. Right, in this script, these guys are the heroes. And the thing about these guys is they weren't really gangsters themselves, you know, they were kind of nice guys, you know, ordinary guys who hit upon this language to speak that just took off and became famous. But except for one guy that they later got involved with, this guy Suge Knight, who I think was on trial while the movie came out, uh, he was he was a genuine a genuine bad guy, and he's portrayed as a genuine bad guy. But these other guys were just kind of portraying gangsters in their songs, okay? But that's what they were doing. So of course this stuff came out, and it was especially uh, antithetical to the police and all this, and the 
white establishment, as portrayed in this movie, reacted very badly to it. And there was a lot of establishment reaction. So here's, here's a clip from this, and I think they've cut out all the dirty words, because, which is like every other word, but I think they, they've cleaned this clip up for the public, uh, where they're giving a press conference. So these guys have been a big deal, and they give a press conference, and all these stiff, square, white reporters stand up and start asking them questions. And you can see how the, the group uh, NWA is portrayed. Take a look. Like Y'all just got a snapshot of how Americans really feel. We gave the people a voice. We gave the people truth. Yeah, but your songs, they glamorize the lifestyle of gangs, guns, drugs. Our art is a reflection of our reality. What you see when you go outside your door? I know what I see. And it ain't glamorous. You get AKs from Russia and cocaine from Colombia. It ain't none of us got a passport, so... Yeah. Might want to check the source. Yeah, next question. Will you be more careful about what you say, how you say it? No. Probably not, no. Wow. Freedom of speech includes rap music, right? But we exercise in our First Amendment, as far as I'm concerned. And the government wrote that. <laughs> I think the guy who plays Ice Cube is Ice Cube's son, isn't it? Because it looks, it looks exactly yeah. like him, yeah. Um, so, so, okay, the typical... American artist story. The American artist is the rubble. He's speaking truth to power. Uh, the white establishment, the establishment in this case, the white establishment, uh, if, you were, if you're just listening and you couldn't see the reporter who was asking that question about glamorizing violence, he just looks at a total blockhead. I mean, he might, he might just as well have had le a Lego head, you know. <laughs> he's just a total, total, you know, blockhead. He's not getting it. And these guys are speaking the truth of their neighborhood, okay. They're, you don't understand because you're white. They're speaking the truth of their neighborhood. And the most important thing that we see through this is the police, who are just consistently portrayed uh, as br brutal and unfair and unkind. And, um, and the, of course, one of their famous songs and one of the songs that really became a big deal was a song called F the Police, uh, which also became sort of a, uh, an anthem during the Rodney King riots uh, later on in, in 92. It was scrawled all over the walls and all this stuff. And by the way, I have to say, there was a certain amount, there's a certain amount of reality to this. The LAPD, I know this because I've talked to people in law enforcement in LA, like in the sheriff's department, who, who will say, LAPD was not so good about this issue uh, back before uh, the new policing came in, and it was really, and they really reformed a lot of police uh, departments. So here's the police. Here's a scene. Paul Giamatti plays the evil white Jewish guy who's in every black movie. Uh, and it, but this is his one good moment when his his ra his rappers are taken down by the police for absolutely no reason. They're standing on the corner, minding their own business. The police come and throw them down to the floor. And Paul Giamatti, who turns in the only really good performance in the film, uh, goes nuts. And so here's that that scene. I think. Sit tight and let us do our job. Hey, officer, I'm sorry. What is going Sir? on out? Can you stay right there, please? We're trying to check these bangers, oh. make sure they're clean. All right, I'm sorry. These are not bangers, okay? These, um, these are artists. Excuse me, artists? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. What kind of artists? Rappers, and they're working with me in the studio right now. Well, see, rap is not an art. And I'm sorry, who are you? I'm the manager. Well, you're wasting your time. Mr. Manager. You gotta be kidding me. You're wasting your time. Really? These, these clients of yours, these yeah. rappers, yeah. they look like gang members. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? Ow, ow, ow. But that's police harassment. You said you're a manager, right? Yeah. Not a lawyer. Does that matter? You cannot come down here and harass these guys because they're black. All right, I'm running out of time, but I want what I wanted to say is is this 
this picture was brought out, uh, and they said Dr. Dre, Andre Young, uh, told the put out a video saying this is a good time for us to tell our story. And uh, Ice Cube added the same thing that we was going through in the 80s with the police people going through right now. So this film was meant to play into the Black Lives Matter protests against the police. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, it's really easy for a white guy to sit here and kind of condemn this uh, idea. You know, we're obviously on the, on the side of the police. We know that the new police methods cut down crime, saved black lives. Uh, I did a video about this. You can, I was going to play it, but I don't have time. That you can look up on YouTube where I talked about Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives don't matter to Black Lives Matter because the, the so many thousands of Black Lives have been saved by the tough policing that was being done uh, after this picture took place in the in the 2000s. Uh, the kind of broken windows policing just saved thousands of lives uh, that don't matter to Black Lives Matter, and. And so the, my problem with this is not the romanticization of these guys, because what I was thinking about is we talked about this just a, just a, a couple of weeks ago. We talked about gangsters are romantic. Gangsters are outlaws. Everybody loves a gangster movie, and that these guys are essentially a singing gangster movie. That's what they are. And you can't say, you can't deprive one group of their gangsters and then say, but it's all right for us to go and watch Goodfellas and how cool they are. And, you know, we, you know, we hate them, we're against them, but we also kind of admire them. <clears throat> the, the problem for me is not the movie. The problem is, is those blockheads, those white establishment blockheads who question these values are virtually gone. The press is now on the side of these people. And, you know, when rebels become the mainstream, what you have is a very, very troubled society, especially for these people who have no recourse. You know, if a white guy watches this or even a suburban black guy watches this and goes home to his family who loves him and takes care of him and makes sure that he gets an education and that they stay together, it's not going to have any bad effect on him at all. But if what the, the white establishment is saying is it's all right for you to do this, it's all right for you to kill the police, it's all right, we too are saying F the police, then you're lost. Then you're lost. So it's not the movie that I objected to. <laughs> it's the real life uh, people, the Obamas uh, and the, whitest, the white media establishment that has now become uh, accomplices with this kind of attitude. That was what I had to say about that. Not, not all of it, but it's enough, as much as I can get in. My last, this is my last. Tomorrow I'm going to do some music. Tomorrow I'm going to bring you the musical stylings of Lindsay Boring because she has done the one song that I've heard that fits with Halloween that I actually think is a good song. Most, song, most songs, I'll, I'll talk about this more tomorrow. But, but anyway, this is my last uh, Halloween stuff I like. I'll be back doing other stuff I like. And I just, I had to say this. I thought, what do I do for the last stuff I like for Halloween. I thought, I have to go with what I think is the single greatest ghost story ever written. And I know it's famous, but you probably haven't read it. You've probably seen movies of it. You've probably heard it told maybe around a campfire, but you probably haven't read this great story by W.W. Jacobs called The Monkey's Paw. And W.W. Jacobs was a humor writer, and he wrote this one spooky story. I think he may have write, wrote, written two spooky stories, but I don't know what the other one is. And this is his most famous, this is his enduring work, The Monkey's Paw. It is such a beautiful story and very, very condensed. It may be 10 pages long and very condensed prose. It creates this entire world, uh, emotional world and also a sociological world. And basically it's about this, what they call little Englanders, this small couple and their son who get a visit from a sergeant major uh, who has traveled the world and been in India. Here is just a, here's a radio performance of it that just gives us a little snip. And here's the, the 
father of this small English family that never gets to see anything is talking to this sergeant major. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man. Just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Yes, nothing worth hearing. What is the monkey's paw? Read it and find out. It's a great, great, great story, a beautiful piece of writing. Uh, you can find it in the Oxford collection, I think, of ghost stories, uh, but you can probably find it online for free. That's all the time I have. This is the Andrew Claven Show. Come back again, and we will do it again tomorrow. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for listening. Yeah.